heist movies. In addition to con man movies and submarine movies, the heist is in my holy trinity of film genres. I just love the puzzle of how do you break in somewhere, steal a huge amount of cash, and then how do you get away with it? It's a formula, but one for which I am a total sucker. We don't pick our donor bonus movies randomly. Usually on the text thread I toss out one or two options and let the guys pick, but this time I just announced we were watching Triple Frontier, a 2019 Netflix exclusive directed by JC Chandor. Hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I really liked Chandor's previous film, A Most Violent Year, which starred Oscar Isaac as an enterprising immigrant building a fuel oil empire in 1981, New York City's record-setting year for violence and crime. Chandor directs really nuanced, sensitive performances, and he uses violence in a much more interesting way than your average pork chopper, so I was pretty excited to see what he and Oscar Isaac did next. John and Adam, having seen all the dumb promos that Netflix forced down our throats in the couple of weeks after this movie came out, were skeptical. The story in the film is dead simple. Five dudes who used to be Delta Force badasses realize they have a skill set that makes them just about perfect to pull off a heist against a Colombian drug lord. They're going to break in, kill the kingpin, pack a van full of money, and fly it out over the Andes Mountains to a waiting boat deposit the money into a bank in an offshore tax haven, and then live like kings for the rest of their lives. Of course, the dead simple plan hit some obligatory snags or we wouldn't have a movie on our hands. But this film isn't as interested in the what of the snags as the why. What forces push these guys into committing murder for self-enrichment? What's happening in their heads to push back against this impulse? There are great performances by Ben Affleck, Pedro Pascal, Charlie Hunnam, and Garrett Hedlund who round out the squad, and this movie winds up being better than it has to be. Maybe it had bad marketing, or maybe the fact that it's more or less direct to Netflix makes it seem like a B-movie. John and Adam resisted putting this on the list, and spoiler alert, they were wrong. It's not quite a war movie, but it's a really fun heist movie, and all the main guys are wrestling with their place in the world after retiring from the military. The movie respects that and takes it seriously in a way that we all found surprising. The effects of committing extreme violence on other human beings are biological and physiological. That's the price of being a warrior. Today on Friendly Fire, Triple Frontier. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that fucking deserves this, man. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I'm not sure what I deserve, personally. No, you deserve this. You put you sacrificed a lot, Adam, and what have you got to show for it? <laughs> a piece of shit pickup truck? Yeah, a fluffy <laughs> dog that's got almost nothing to say for itself. A daughter I can't afford to put through college. That's right. That's right. All these bullet holes in you? I'm throwing it down right now. Ben Affleck is great in this movie. Wow. Kapow. Kapow. Shot in the head three quarters of the way through it. He's died in six movies. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. That's kind of a thing. That dying comes as a genuine surprise for me. Yeah. Yes. What mean expendable? I love that yeah. his, uh, his call sign is red fly, <laughs> which I think comes from him wearing a red rain fly 
as a jacket throughout the mm. last half of the film. Like they go in. It's kind of rust. They're wearing black. Yeah on their mission and then they switch to colors as they're running away why are they wearing colored jackets to blend in everybody up there in the andes is wearing an eddie bauer jacket from the 80s hey listen we're just five heavily armed backpackers with 60 (laughs) duffel bags okay there is nothing unusual going on here this film has got the heat problem right which is if you could steal the most cash you could steal how do you move it around? Yeah. The whole idea of the pork chop feed being that we can watch <laughs> movies that aren't strictly war movies. Yeah. I went into it kicking and screaming, but this movie scratched so many of my long itches. So many itches. <laughs> I'm an itchy guy and I had a lot of itches. And this one, and in particular, how do you steal the most money and move it? I think about that all the time. When I'm driving down the highway, if I'm not thinking about um, some speech I'm going to give one day on a podium as the world burns around me, mm-hmm. I am thinking about how would Your I... eulogy. <laughs> you know, money's heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was what was so wonderful about the 500 euro note. Yeah. Because the 500 euro note takes the place of of five... 100 euro notes that checks out six hundred dollar bills well right why do they get notes over there in europe and we got bills well, we what get it, notes they're called, with that? they're called bank notes you can oh, yeah, call I them notes so. if you want but and the reason they kind i like of, to call them sawbucks <laughs> the reason they stopped using those high denomination euros is that they were being used by drug dealers right they're like we don't want to seed being the currency of global crime to europe <laughs> but I feel like if you are if you are doing a crime, let me just put this out there, friendly fire behind the paywall. If you're yeah. doing crimes, get euros. Oh yeah, and and I'll add to that. If you're doing crimes, be prepared to do time. That's right. But boy, watching these guys like make a make the first mistake, which is you, you're not sticking to the timeline. You're getting you got you got bamboozled by the money, and it was Affleck. It was. Filling up too many bags, and then you got a problem. You got you three need problems. A heavier lift helicopter, yep. for sure. You need to get something like a hind. Yep. You need like more than one rotor, I feel like. Yeah. You need a two rotor chopper. Yeah. And not those crappy Russian jobs with the with the gearboxes that are that are gonna go out when you're just about to make it to to freedom. Good strong American gearbox is what you need in a situation <laughs> like this. You need two <laughs> choppers. Yeah. All you needed was two choppers. I loved the uh, I loved the moment where the guy lands the Cessna on the airfield, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, we're so fucked! What are we going to do with the Cessna? <laughs> we're going to have to leave a lot of this money behind." Yeah, that was a fun moment. Uh, yeah, um, let me read you guys a list of the actors that were in talks to be in one of the two lead roles in this movie: Tom Hanks, Johnny Depp, Channing Tatum. Tom Hardy, Mahershala Ali, Casey Affleck, all were at one point or another attached to this film. I could see Tom Hardy in this movie easily, right? He he would he would have fit right in. Oh, and Will Smith. Did I say Will Smith? Mark I, Wahlberg was on that list too, right? I mean, imagine this movie with Tom Hanks, Will Smith, and Mark Wahlberg. I want to see Tom Hanks and Mark Wahlberg together. I really the thing do. Is, it would be such <laughs> a lesser movie with those three guys in it. I honestly, I feel like all those all those big actors would have just stunk up the joint. 
I think I think the casting was really good. Will Smith is really hard to picture. Like, would Will Smith be the the Ben Affleck guy? Will Smith yes. would have to be the Oscar Isaac character. I feel like. Oh, maybe. Who is the main character of this film? It's the Oscar Isaac, yes, right? Yes, yes, yeah. Oscar Isaac for sure. Ben Affleck is there to be a red herring. Oscar Isaac was great in this movie, and it was nice to see him elevated to like a starring role. Yeah. Was this movie f- made for Netflix? It, this isn't a feature. This didn't come out in theaters. This is Netflix only, or it may have spent some time in theaters because I, I think a lot of the time Netflix will do a thing where they have it uh, in a couple of theaters to qualify for awards shows for oh. for motion pictures because they often like uh, often movies that only come out on Netflix are only eligible for Emmys and they want them to be eligible for Oscars. Right. I mean, that that scares me a little bit, frankly, because this this movie, this whole new world where where Netflix and HBO or whatever, they're, they're um, Amazon, they're making feature films now available yeah. only on their platform. And what what I liked a lot about this movie was that it did feel like a small scale... Like there was a, clearly a budget, but it was but it was filmed. It didn't look like it was filmed on on video, and it just you know the story was tight and lean. It never got into summer blockbuster territory. It was just like yeah. we got a story to tell, and here it is. And the idea that this is now just going to be available on television, it puts all that much more pressure on Hollywood movies to be these big grotesque like save the world things. I had a conversation at one point. You, you might have been there, John, that uh, I remember John Hodgman was talking about how few films for adults are made anymore. Yeah. And this feels like an, a fun adventure movie, but for, for grownups, you know, like there's, there's swearing and, and stuff in it. There's swearing and stuff. And, and I think the whole setup of... You want all the money. How do you get all the money through this series of kind of practical hurdles? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's an adult movie. No kid is going to be kept interested in right. like, well, now you've got a hundred duffel bags full of cash and you're, and you got to get them across a mountain range. No kid is tantalized by the idea of would you throw fifty million dollars away right. in order to keep two hundred million dollars? But as an adult, that's exactly I think the kind of thing that uh, that hooks your mind. For me, at least, that 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 has at least as many as much stakes as like um, like if you had to throw a man out of the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing works in this film, does it? At every turn, everything they try fails. And and it's funny because you you get the picture as soon as they get into the mansion and they make the the, the mistake of not getting out on their timeline, you know this is going to be one of those movies where it's like one fuck up after another, one clusterfuck, you know, cascading. But but the cascading never feels uh, rote, right? The mistakes. Right keep compounding but it's never you never predict it you never look ahead and go like oh now we're going to spend a half an hour like walking through this plot point i love that the inciting incident is a good thing that is actually a bad thing there's more money than they thought it's easier to get than they thought and that's bad that is so bad it ends up being very bad Lined it up. they have almost a sense of embarrassment 
at a certain point because they're guys who were as elite of soldiers as they could as they could be who are having a string of fuck ups and it like doesn't fit with their own self image that they're making mistakes. Right. And making mistakes in, in a mission that should have been a cakewalk that because they don't have, there's no moral background. They keep saying in the movie, you know, if you have a flag on the, on the a flag patch on your shoulder, it justifies like so much. And without that flag patch, they're like unprotected by, by honor Right. It's it's a murder and not a not a killing in a war. Right. In a war context. But they also talk about like a lot of the missions that they went on in when they were active duty were illegal from a a certain viewpoint. You know, they were not they were not acting, you know, in strict adherence to the Geneva Conventions as Delta Force guys. Right. But they had that flag on their shoulder. I thought it was interesting that the tone that this film set right out of the gates by having Ironhead give that presentation to the active duty soldiers that was like the anti uh, Bill Murray Rushmore speech right. in the beginning about Don't how shitty Blackwater. it is to, <laughs> to join Blackwater. Yeah. I wanted a little more of that conflict in, in both the Ironhead character and in that presentation. Like there's a tension throughout the film about why you would ever leave and why you would ever go either private security or mercenary and how unsatisfying it is to have taken one path over another. And like each character gets their 10 minutes of setup, but ultimately those bits are a little unsatisfying. Like we're, we're rushing to get the gang together to do this heist that I think this film like wants to say something deeper about those aspects of of being in war and having a post-war life but it ultimately it gives its time to the heist which it should the heist is fun right but i think there's a chance here with another 10 or 15 minutes to like say something profound and i wasn't expecting that there's a a version of this film that was directed by Catherine bigelow right who produces this one she, I think, yeah, and I, I wondered if she had the production credit because she developed the screenplay with Mark Bowl, or if she actually had an active yeah. hand in this. I didn't get a clear sense of how how much contact she had with the film uh, based on what I read about it. But I mean, like the like he has a line in that in that speech that is almost directly from the Hurt Locker about like being in the cereal aisle at the Piggly Wiggly and. Like, like that made me think, like, what if this was, what if they had just made this as a sequel to The Hurt Locker? Well, that's, we've seen this a lot in movies of a recent vintage, in particular, where the sort of elite squad comes back to the States. And it's not just that they're combat weary. It's not just that they have PTSD. It's really much more that they are blue collar dudes who were blue collar before they went into the war. They became highly specialized right. as, as good at what they do as anybody on earth. But when they come back to the States, they're not just damaged, but they reenter life as essentially an unskilled blue collar worker. So they come back to America and, and are part of this white lower middle class. Yeah. Your repelling skills are not going to be 
applicable at, at like, the plant. Like a shit job, right? You'd have to sell a pretty unique condominium for your repelling skills yeah. <laughs> to come in handy. But this is the thing you're talking about, Adam, that doesn't we that we don't look at very much because it's um because it's not really a heroic take, which is that their reintegration doesn't have as much to do with the fact that they don't that they're they're not sure how to live in a world where they're not killing people. It is that they go from being high-ranking people in one context back to being low-ranking in a social context and low-ranking with absolutely no path to be high-ranking again. Yeah, I wanted to be sad a little longer in this film for them. Like, I wanted to grieve the post-war lives for them before they're racked back up again and ready to go. Like... I think there's a moment there of some poignancy that we kind of skip over. Well, and you know why we do? Because the movie opens on a pretty great 10-minute-long set piece, cold open, kind of like Batman-style raid that's really well choreographed and filmed, really exciting, really hypes it up, but it is completely superfluous to the movie. And it's great. It really puts you in the spot. But then we go but then we meet our characters, right? And so the opening is only to introduce our main guy and give us a picture that this drug lord is bad. Right. But I don't feel like we need to be told how how bad a drug lord is. <laughs> we'll take that as a given. We are told and not shown how bad he yeah, is, right. and I think that's too bad. Yeah. That job is done a lot better in other war films, making making the heavy worse. This is yeah. this is just a random drug lord guy. Yeah, and that raid is just for fun. It doesn't... It, it is so fun. It's really fun raid. Ben and I were nerding out offline about a lot of the, the production choices in this film, and one of my favorite shots in the whole thing, I don't feel like you get too often, was the over-the-shoulder perspective of the RPG going across a street into that building. So often that's shot wide or shot in profile to see, like, the path of the thing. But that RPG doesn't even move in frame. It just sort of, like, gets smaller and disappears (laughs) in that building. And then that building blows up. It blows big. Everything blows big in this movie. Super fun. I I feel like filmmakers really recently figured out that you could do that. Like, there's a shot in the... um, in the born legacy i think it is the jeremy renner one where he's like standing in a forest outside of a a shed and he watches a missile arc across the sky and blow up the shed behind him and it's like one continuous cut and it's the same thing it's like it feels like it's it's happening it's it's really happening around him because the camera doesn't cut away it's it's from it's shot from his perspective it's uh and it makes it feel super kinetic and amazing You've got to assume that the first time an editor brought a director into the bay and and showed him a sequence where they didn't cut away from the RPG and you get it all in one take, that that felt risky. Like right. there was there was a first time that an editor made the case for that where where they had to convince a director that this was the right thing. And that was a watershed moment in action films. Whatever moment that was, was important. Because you're saying there were five covering shots that yeah. could have cut to six different takes you on it. can't not get coverage in a moment like that because you only get to destroy that building once. Right. I actually read about this. The director walked out of the edit bay and, and the editor went after him and was like, okay, you got your $17,000. You could go home right now. You'd be the best of us. <laughs> and, the, and the director was like, no, 
<laughs> like I'm we got to do this. We got to yeah. do this. Yeah. <laughs> I th- I thought this movie worked great. There there minor sort of issues I had at various moments. There's a little bit of a like a spatial geography problem. How the mountains play a role and and where exactly they're going. Yeah. Not, uh, as far as like a buddy movie and a and a shoot 'em up like. I was on. I was along for the ride from the from the get go. That makes me so happy to hear. I don't know what <laughs> I expected from you about this movie, but uh, that is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a. It was a. It was fun, and I cared about the dudes. Yeah. And and again, like there, there wasn't anybody in this crew that was that was like the brain. I mean, Ben Affleck was the guy that they all depended on. Right. And crucially, he was the one that fucked it all up. I love how excited <laughs> everyone was for his involvement. And when he started like rattling off the process and the timetable, everyone's like, yes, this is why we have Red Fly. Yeah, here he is. <laughs> Red Fly's the man. But what was great about it was that his like, okay, all right, here's how it's going to break down. You know, because he's yeah. like, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And they're like, we know you've yeah. thought about it. And then he starts- You have a fucking list in your head. Yeah. yeah. And then he starts breaking it down. And it's not that smart of a plan. Like- it just it it sort of reinforced for me this thing that we do with special forces guys which is just lionize them and we start to think of them as superhuman and we in these movies they're just capable of anything and everything they do is like until they make one mistake you know or until yeah. something like that happens but of course these guys you know most of them have a high school education they've learned a set of skills but that set of skills is pretty constrained and, and maladaptive for most other things that right. they might do for for their life. Right. I mean, they're not, they are, they probably have a, you know, like a three week course in combat engineering, but they don't, they're not philosophers and they're not even really planners. Like all their missions are planned for them. And so they're, what they're good at is improvising on the ground. But this idea that Ben Affleck is like, he's the honcho and he comes in and his plan is like, okay, well go in through the front door. I guess they're at church. So, and then you guys go in through the back door and then we get the money. We didn't get the scene where somebody walked up to the church that the drug dealer goes to and goes like, about how long is a typical Sunday service? You guys doing mass for like, is it like an hour and a half long kind of mass or 40 minutes? I noticed a a family showed up in a Mercedes SUV. Do they come every time? (laughs) They cut out the scene where Pope was like, now guys, I will not issue any silencers for these weapons. Right. (laughs) This may be a black ops mission where we need to be like super stealthy. No silencers. No silencers. That's just a, that's a point of pride. I thought about that so often in this film, how, how much of a necessity a silencer would be in in all of these cases on the mountain even i feel like i've read that i i mean i don't know personally but i've i've read that si- like the amount of silencing you get from a silencer has been greatly exaggerated by films if you're shooting yeah. during a rainstorm i bet a silencer would really help good point but definitely a uh, a uh, poof Coming from the other room, if you're a bad guy drug dealer watching a soccer game, yeah. you're going to go, huh, what was that? If you don't have a silencer, what you want is a remote control, like right. a universal remote right. control. Just turn even. the volume yeah. up on the thing. The guy's like, what's going on with my TV? I would have really loved to see Lorea just like walking around the house going like, Pedro, <laughs> did you hear something? <laughs> but definitely a gunshot from the entryway. That's going to cause you to hit your safe room pretty fast. Yeah. 
Yeah. A safe room made out of cash, full of cash. I heard you like cash in your safe room, so we made your safe room out of cash so you could be safe with your cash. At what point did the growing amount of cash become dreadful? I think it was the moment that the safe room door opened and there's even more in there. I think that was the moment for me that was like, this is this is turned really bad. This is good to bad. There's too much minutes. cash here. Yeah. yeah, cut your losses. And I, I mean, this is a question, right? Like how much guilt do you sew into your vest and then drown in the river? This is a film that makes the case for cargo pants. <laughs> <laughs> like if this if this heist were in 1997 i think each of these guys would have carried uh a lot more money out of this the ben affleck family trust would have had like 10 million dollars in, instead of five million dollars <laughs> there's a moment when they're headed over the mountains when you think okay each guy put five million bucks on his back and then hustle yeah um instead of this like this this awful awful camp train do you wish when they were weighing the bags pre-flight that you got a rack in on the weight of one of the bags i wish we knew the weight of one bag right it would have really helped me understand the problem i mean as it was you get that these bags are heavy but i want to know exactly how heavy they're heavy as a guy who's carried a few duffel bags stuffed full of cash let me tell you (laughs) it's not tissue paper and none of those bags were filson either no they weren't they were they were not going to survive five winters yeah Yeah. but they weren't going to smell super musty after a a winter in the basement either no it's a good thing they had bags with a nice high tensilary strength and the other thing that was never really addressed ended up being the hook of the movie which is throw these bags down a hole and come back for them you guys need to get out of here you need to live first and so find a hiding place for these bags right once the helicopter crashes and you steal the mules from the village Take the mules up somewhere, find a hole, put the bags in, and get out. And they never do that. They keep trying. And for a quitter like me, that really rubbed the wrong way. Yeah. If, if they get out with $10 million, they can get a way better helicopter. That's right. And come back, right? Like, everybody take a bag, throw the rest in a hole, and come back. And, and the fact that that isn't covered in the movie... No one voices that. No one voices it at all. And 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 at the at the end when they're all splitting up and it's like, well, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna go back to my shitty life. What about you? Me too. Same shitty life. And then it's like, well, actually, I kept the coordinates. Here you go. Here you go, titular hero. Like take the take these coordinates and start a new adventure. Come back for a quadruple frontier. (laughs) And it was like, did no one think about that before? It was just the guy that keeps the numbers. It would have been on everyone's mind. Right. It should have been. Well, and and as they split up, I was thinking, now now this moment is where everybody has a look on their face where it's like, okay, you guys, well, thanks a lot. See you later. And then it becomes a a cannonball run type race for that money. Mad race for the money. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's the sequel to this. Yeah. That's, it was never it was never covered though and it and it felt a little bit like any teenage boy is going to run that scenario out. The, yeah, they could have injected more rivalry into it. Like they were all very like the team was so cohesive and tight. It never betrayed an idea of competition at the end of the film, which would have been a fun little pivot. They started to get pissed at each other. Yeah. And and I feel like that part of the missing geography was also the missing five to seven days or whatever because when that kid from the village finally shot ben affleck 
and they were arguing about whose fault it was. In the head. In the head. Headshot. Then our, our hero, Pope, says, you know, it's nobody's fault. That kid's been following us for days. Can't blame it on burning the pile of money. Right. It's not the, It wasn't the fire. That kid's been following us for days. But in the timeline of the movie as we're watching it, it was not given to us that that like a week or more. Yeah, they camped several times. So, so there was some missing timeline. I mean, we got the scene where they're like hunkered down in the jungle, getting rained on. But I, yeah, like one more scene of them like eating canned fish or something. Yeah. Do you guys want to hear a uh, moment of pedantry about Triple Frontier? I do. Santiago claims that Colombia does not possess facial recognition cameras. This is incorrect. Uh, NEC installed such cameras beginning in 2016. Hmm. I I picked his pedantic quibble because it made me think a lot about like how much in the present tense this film is set. But like, is the present the past 10 years and like ambiguously set in any where within that time frame or are are we to assume that it's now? This movie was like started in development in 2010, so <laughs> I wonder if that's like a That would predate that technology. Yeah, from the script being a pr- pretty long in the tooth by the time they got around to making it. But it's a film that is, you know, a fun heist movie, but set amidst a like a fairly contemporary issue, which is this kind of soldier cycling back to the world. And, and I mean, like a Rambo amount of disaffection, but in a in a super different cultural context. You know, if if Rambo had, had MMA matches to go let off some steam at, maybe uh, maybe he wouldn't have taken out Sheriff Teasel and all those guys. Well, uh, in Rambo three, he did become a stick fighter <laughs> when Troutman <laughs> found him and took him to Afghanistan. So, I mean, that was part of his his story. And we are not leaving them any of this fucking money. Triple Frontier is named after a real place: Colombia, Peru, and Brazil all abut each other in. Las Tres Fronteras. I think there needed to be a line or two to explain what was going on. Like, you can't take for granted that three bozos like us from the United States are aware of the triple frontier region. They sell the idea visually by uh, having shot a bunch of this in Hawaii and then comping the Andes Mountains in the background of a lot of the, like, more verdant parts of it. And, uh, Ben and I were geeking out on some of the visual effect articles that were written about this movie, and the work is solid. Like, they did great stuff here. All they needed was, when they were planning this heist in the shipping container, there needed to be a map, which someone pointed to with a pencil. And it (laughs) said, here's Valverde. Yeah. Right. Where are we from Valverde? That's all I wanted to know. (laughs) But no, you circle it and you go like, okay, so here are the borders and here's where we're going in and here's how we're coming out. Yeah. And if they if that had been here's in there. Here's the mountain from Lord of the Rings that we're going to walk up. Right. Here's the set painting. All right, I'm going to try to land over here. That helicopter scene from beginning to end. We are a show that has on the pork chop feed geeked out on helicopter stunts. We, yeah. did, we did it in T2. That's one of the best helicopter scenes, full stop, that you'll ever get. Truly amazing. Yeah. But this one was great. 
I thought. Yeah. Like, you understand the danger 40 minutes ahead. Like, there's an operational ceiling for this helicopter that they can't go over, given the weight that they're carrying. And you see these mountains ahead. And I felt like Pedro Pascal would be the liability here throughout. Uh, but he's right at every step of the way during all of the flight sequences. He and he's super right. born again hard in everything that he does. Yeah, he's the liability on the ground. But in the air... Uh, all of his choices are are correct, and all of his predictions end up coming true. They kind of talk down to him, like yeah. like when Ben Affleck comes back and he goes, "You need five guys and a pilot." Like yeah. I wanted him to be like, "What, what am I? <laughs> like, come on, yeah. I'm going to be holding the fucking rifle just like you guys." He's he is as capable a soldier as any of them, as far as his depiction goes, and then also a good pilot on top of that. It sustains attention during an aircraft crashing that feels very difficult to sustain over the course of of its sequence like that painful blowout of the transmission how much time there is to get down the mountain in the chopper the find a place that they can land that isn't going to immediately kill them because it's a dense jungle that they won't be able to get out of you gotta drop that guy out of the bottom to be with him when the helicopter crashes behind him and then the, the visual effects of that chopper falling and looking weighty as its, as its prop catches the dirt and spins around, like, it looks heavy and real in a way that CG usually doesn't. Yeah. It was really well done. The, the pieces of rotor flying around and, yeah. our, and our dude is on the ground just, like, shrapnel every direction. And, yeah. And that, yeah. that feeling of, of like, random... Uh, survival in a moment like that where you're like well I could have been beheaded 40 times and somehow I also was standing yeah. right here and kind of walked away it felt believable I've never seen my wife yell at the TV more than during that scene <laughs> you yell in just excitement and fear you mean like run away from it not toward it because he's like he's like going to like kick out a window but the rotor's still going yeah. <laughs> these MI8s are used for commercial transportation around the world. They are one of the most produced aircraft, not just helicopters, but aircraft in the world. There are more than 17,000 of them still flying. You're kidding. It is Damn. like the Toyota Camry of helicopters, which totally makes their ability to get one for this purpose. Like, I totally bought it right. after reading this about the chopper. I was like, how do they get this Russian chopper in Brazil? Like that, that strange credulity for me until I read that like you could buy one right now. Cause this is the <laughs> Afghanistan chopper, right? Yeah. This is the Russian, this is, we, we see this in red dawn, right? Yeah. These are the, the choppers that come over the rise used by over 50 countries. They are everywhere. This is another thing from the goof section. Uh, it's not uh, like, I feel like this is a moment of pedantry. That's actually kind of interesting. Uh, it says that the tail boom displays both, faux soviet cccp civil registration marks and the distinctive triangular tricolor insignia of the hungarian air force no real eastern european aircraft would display both sets of markings because although numerous former soviet client states in europe operated or still operate aircraft left in their territory by the soviets when the iron curtain fell these nations sought to legitimize their claims by rapidly painting over all Soviet markings, often in a matter of hours after their last Soviet guests left. Wow. Nice. That, like, I want to see that movie. Me like, too. Can you imagine? Let's keep this Air Force. <laughs> Get out there with the paint cans, quick! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can... Just I taking can, latex house paint on a roller? Yeah. yeah. I can totally sympathize with that. It's just sort of like, well... Yeah. You know, uh, you left it in the garage, so it's my Corvette now. Yeah. Wow. 
in a film that is made up of a of a heist of a mansion filled with cash I think the the enduring memory for me is going to be the helicopter crash. The thing about the the thing about the 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 plot point though is that a helicopter has an operational ceiling. The way the movie was talking about it, it was just like about how heavy the load was. Yeah, and they it turned it into a weight problem. It strained the the um, it strained the gears, but there was also it was it was the altitude. Well, he said, yeah, the he says it's got the two thousand pound lift capacity at at sea level at three thousand feet but they need to go over 11,000 feet right so I mean that was that would have been maybe trickier to there was just a little bit more I wanted about helicopter dynamics helicopter engineering yeah but I I, I may be in the minority there (laughs) I don't know know how many uh, Hollywood script doctors are like what this needs is some more technical shit about the chopper (laughs) this film does something great after the crash, though, when the villagers come out and you think like, oh, yeah, these fucking dumbass farmers aren't going to be much of a threat. And they immediately peg them as DEA. Right. And, and, and they're all and coke the, farmers. The threat assessment of them gets like blown off the charts. Like they are in so much danger almost immediately there. Yeah. That yeah. was wild. It was great. The film does that fairly often. Like your expectations are twisted around. You think you're going to be safe and excited. And instead you're scared. Yeah. It's an endless cascade from frying pan to fire. Yeah. Yeah. When Ben Affleck comes around and he's like, these guys are growing cocaine and this is not cool. And then yeah. all of a sudden it's, they've got their guns out and it's an, it's gnarly. And it's the oldest, most grizzled guy at the farm. That's the scariest. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> that guy creeped me out. Um, Pedro Pascal in that scene is the one that licks the first shot. He like can't. You know, they don't have comms and he can't see what the guy is pulling out of his jacket. And a lot of those farmers do have pistols and stuff. And he kind of errs on the side of killing first, you know, asking questions later. They they kill like four of those uh, of those villagers on the logic that if there is going to be some killing, it might as well be all the farmers and none of them. Right. And then he feels like real remorse. And there's really interesting application of remorse and feeling bad about killing in this movie. Like they, they are originally trying to set up the op so that they are killing one single guy. And they're like, we're signing up for a single murder and a single B and E and that's it. We're killing the bad guy, which is, which is kind of the operating force. Right. But then they, you know, they very quickly when, when they realize that they have outstayed their welcome, realize that they're going to have to kill like 11 guards also. Like Pedro Pascal is the guy that goes into the kitchen and shoots the, the dudes that they hogtied. They, they are pretty sanguine about that. But then they, they have remorse when the fucking donkey dies. I mean, they're, you, you see the pain on their faces when they realize that the mission's gone sideways and they're going to have to kill people. And I think they keep that pain on their faces the rest of the film. Like yeah. the, the, the remorse, the feeling that they have fucked up is something that I think what they're, I think what the movie is communicating is they've all put that on the back burner cause they have a, they have to get out of here. But when right. they get home, they're, they're going to feel terrible. They're going to feel terrible and they're going to be mad at each other. And it's, this is not the capper to their career they hoped it was going to be from the moment they shoot it shoot shoot an extra guy yeah and and like that's such an interesting meditation on like the way soldiers have to kind of compartmentalize what they do 
Like it, like the second they're not doing this on behalf of a nation state, it is criminal in their minds. And like literally it's the flag patch that, that is the dividing line. And we see that, I mean, I, I, I feel like we've seen this quite a bit in the, in, over the course of this show, the convoluted justification of killing in war versus killing in life and in the world. Yeah. And I imagine that special forces teams have a much more developed sense of honor and and like the honor of the of the team. You know, I, I bet you they school each other all the time. And I think that's probably why the special forces teams are recruited so heavily from red states and there's a lot of religion in the US military you know what you don't want is a bunch of libertarians that put a lot of tension into the movie that like if the three of us were pulling off a heist (laughs) and it involved killing 11 guys (laughs) i would be crying from the word go well you would be crying but i feel like after you'd killed your second guy there would be a kind of bloodthirst that rose up in you all of your rage all of your rage would just turn into like (laughs) you'd be like tom cruise in taps we're just like this yeah. beautiful man. Ben would be pulling the trigger until it just went click, yeah. click, 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 click. Right. It's a kind of terrifying movie in a way because it makes the case that there are dudes walking around who were not well compensated for their time, you know, doing really scary, you know, high high risk, danger close shit when they were in in the military that could pull off crazy heists like this and what is stopping them from doing so what is stopping them from choking you out in a piggly wiggly nothing (laughs) i just don't go to piggly wigglies i go to the natural food store right the chances (laughs) of one of them coming up behind you at the whole foods in brentwood and giving you a a french tickle this is is very low this is a film that makes a strong case for keep moving or get out of the way doesn't it yes it does I drive across town and exclusively shop at the Whole Foods in Brentwood because it's the safest place for me. It is. Yeah, nothing bad ever happened in Brentwood, right? Oof. Oof. Oh, low blow. (laughs) (laughs) Too soon. I am getting the sense that we all really liked the movie, but for this movie to be great, like to transcend into great action movie slash great war film, does Loria need to be... Uh, more developed does he need to be sketched out into the heavy a little better because as it is this is this is an oceans 11 style heist film without its andy garcia there it is andy garcia they uh they don't have an andy garcia playing this role i think that we covered that when we when we realized like that, that this is the problem with the opening right we don't need to see evidence that a colombian drug dealer is a ruthless bad guy who needs to die it's relying on us to know from the other hundred right colombian drug war films right. that we already know that. we've seen sicario well, i think crucially he dies very early in the film and, and they are yeah. isolated for most of the film too like they don't they're not going to interact with the the ba- the big baddie you know there's no end boss in this movie among the surprises of this film was that he was killed so early i thought this was going to be a story about him surviving and exacting revenge but instead it pivots into more of a survival story. It's great. The scenes in the house do such a great job of like multivalent tension 
of like, are we going to get the guards? Are we going to get Loria? Where's the money? Did Oscar Isaac lie to us? Right. Did yeah. the girl rat us out? Like there's so many things at play and it, and it makes sure you keep all of them in your brain while, while that fairly long scene, like that's probably a 10 minute set piece that they're in the house, like from, from starting the operation to driving away in the, in the, in the van. You, you process a lot of potential risk that they are just now considering. There's a version of the film where they don't smell the paint and they don't find the money and they drive yeah. away and they go to the airport and they can't pay the guy with the Cessna and they t- get in the helicopter and they fly safely over the Andes, <laughs> then get in that boat and go. There's a version of the film where they get over the Andes in the helicopter, but the operation went bad and they killed a bunch of guys. And then they go back to the States and they're rich, but they are, yeah. you know, recriminating each other and miserable and, you know, like have the the ill-gotten gains problem. I feel like the Oscar Isaac character's relationship to the bad guy drug dealer and to his informant and to these dudes... We, we never fully ex- uh, understand, and it's not f- from lack of exploring it. And I think the fact that we don't understand it is a strength, mm. right? Because he's the only one of these special forces dudes that landed on his feet. He's still kind of in the top of his game while everybody else is floundering. Is it a vendetta he has against this drug dealer? Does he really believe that he is making the world a better place by assassinating him and the money is sort of a secondary issue? Or is this a cash grab? Yeah, I got I got the feeling that he'd gotten so frustrated with how corrupt the police were that he was working with that he just decided like, okay, I can kind of like kill two birds with one stone here. I can get a ton of money for myself and also potentially make the world a better place by by killing this one guy i really love how uh how when pope makes the case for this mission he begins with the loria character as a reason for doing it yeah. you and guys then, we gotta get this and then guy. when he realizes he doesn't have any traction in the room he's like all right well what if we did it like this <laughs> there's actually a lot of money and we could have all of it right like i wonder if he were able to sell them on the loria plan initially what then well, yeah, then, you know, you just sort of, you drop the money thing kind of on your way there. Yeah. By having the entire crew not agree with his justifications initially, and really never fully invested with any of the justifications at all, individually, there is like this cloud of them together that serves to inspire everyone to join this team. No one is ever fully 100% on on Pope's side. And all of them are a little bit suspicious of him throughout. Yeah. To the degree that I was expecting a little bit of a rat fuck at some point. Well, or you mean like a like a John Woo uh, three three guns showdown? Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting <laughs> uh, Pope to, to turncoat. Yeah. Or it wouldn't have surprised me, I should say, if that had happened. I wasn't expecting it, but... I felt like if Pope had introduced the idea as a heist at the beginning, that somehow their their code as special forces dudes would have prohibited them from agreeing. He had to, he had to manipulate them, and he did it by, by putting Ben Affleck in a position where, yes, he's the old man, he's the one that everybody respects, and he's also the one that is the most bedraggled. The most desperate for a come up because Pope is doing pretty well like if he's got 
$100,000 of discretionary income to pay to his friends to convince them to do a heist with him. Right. He's fine. Right. He's doing okay. And the whole premise that he was going to pay these guys 17000 bucks to go down and do a recon, which meant that they just walked over there and looked at the house through binoculars and all agreed <laughs> like, yep, it's got electric power, seems to have toilets inside. There's a road, uh, some dudes. Okay, great. Let's get out of here. I mean, it was the recon lasted a half an hour. It was a sales job. It was a sales job. I think uh, Ben Affleck's character could have learned a lot from that sales job in, in terms of, of his real estate career, right? Yeah. You know, why didn't this movie have one flashback to the, to the five of them working as a special forces team? If we'd gotten like two minutes of them on some formative mission where we could see them in the roles that they played within, their, within the special teams... Um, that could have been our cold open. That could have been, right? If we'd seen them when they were in their heyday. It, was Pope the corporal? Was he Ben Affleck's second in command? It didn't really seem like. Why did why did Pope land so well? Why was he so well adjusted? I kind of honestly like that they didn't show that. Because I think that that's, like, that's a movie we've seen, right? Where like you see them all as badasses and then you like smash cut to them in the cereal aisle. Right. Feeling disaffected and and shitty and then they try something like like just the way they like square their shoulders to each other we we read how much history they have and that's a pretty cool thing to achieve it's also i agree the way that soldiers relate to each other and relate to civilians is like a mythologizing right and i don't mean that as pejorative i just mean that like if you weren't there all you have to do is just take their word for it and so if you, if as a viewer, you're watching these guys talk about their past experience, you're just going to have to take their word for it. You're going to have to, you're going to have to believe that they missed that life that they had and they worked really well together. That seems like in keeping with how a civilian would engage with people like this and their stories as they tell them, both to each other and to us. It felt contemporary like that. Like I didn't need any secret knowledge to, to get how close they were. Right. Yeah, and I think plays into how big their conflicts get when they're in the field and how quick they are to forgive each other when they're in Grand Cayman or wherever they are at the end, you know. And and how much they are willing to just sign over their shares of the $5 million they made it out with to somebody else. Like that, it you know, it's that life of service that, like, the right thing to do is not keep this for myself. Did they take the boat to Grand Cayman from Brazil? Must have. Wow. Well, you know, I think you could get to the ABCs like Aruba, Bonaire, Curaçao. I mean, those that's not far off of uh, Grand Cayman. Would be a long boat ride. If I ever got a yacht, I would I'd flag it from Bonaire. Bonaire is nice, right? Yeah. The air is bone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, maybe we should try to rate this movie. Did this movie give you guys a Bonaire? Uh, for every single friendly fire film, except for a few at the beginning, uh, we give a we we give a custom rating system, and it's based on a uh, on an object or in some cases a person, but very rarely is it ever a person that catches my eye and becomes the rating system for Triple Frontier. There were so many things that could have been this rating system, but there was one thing that was the most spectacular moment in the film of a moment 
made of spectacular things, almost exclusively. <laughs> I have never seen this in any other action film or war film, but the moment where they're scaling the cliff and that donkey <laughs> falls off the cliff and then and when the donkey lands and explodes into <laughs> a cloud of cash, exploding donkey filled with cash <laughs> is an image that I will cherish forever. It is the rating system that we will use to review Triple Frontier on a scale of one to five exploding donkeys filled with cash. That donkey tried so hard not to fall off that cliff too. Three yeah. or four or five different attempts to stay on its feet. They rightly grieve the death of that donkey. They're very sure-footed beasts. Like, if you've ever seen a donkey on, like, a mountain trail, like, they, it's amazing to watch them set their feet down on stable things that they don't appear to be looking directly at. They observe, as they're scaling the rock face, a couple of what look like chalk lines on the rocks, and it made me wonder if, like, a previous person using that that rock face uh, had had marked that part as as a part that was maybe more dangerous than the others. Did you guys notice that, or was that just me? Hmm. It looked like there was some delineation to the path that they were on. Hmm. Anyway, the donkey couldn't tell the difference. The donkey goes over and explodes in a into a bloody cloud of cash. I think this represents the film in a pretty fun way. Obviously, a ton of money was spent on its production and its casting. It's loaded in both cases. I approached this movie, honestly, Ben, I thought it was a trash pick. I was like, <laughs> I, this was an inescapable preview in Netflix. When you turned on Netflix for a while, this would just start auto-playing. I didn't want to hear it. Didn't yeah. want to watch it. <laughs> I did sort of. I did sort of thrust this uh, this pork chop upon you guys. And I approached it reluctantly, but like a lot of my favorite movie experiences, I went in with low expectations and came out really happy with what I saw. I love how it didn't even. <laughs> It didn't try to suppress at all the idea of a sequel. Like, it, it totally <laughs> too fast, too furious the ending of this thing, and I loved it more for it. Yeah. Like, I cannot wait to get this gang back together. <laughs> uh, it was fun all the way through. It was relentless in a way yeah. that some of the best action movies are. Even this is, without Ben Affleck, there's enough star power in this gang for yeah. a sequel. This is a genre that is maligned. A lot, and it's I. I truly believe that the action movie genre is hard to do right, and it's an, one of the reasons why we don't get many pure action movies anymore. And I think this represents some of the best that can be done in the genre. It was super fun. I'm glad I saw it. I'm gonna give it. It's not perfect. I'm gonna give it four and a half exploding cash donkeys. It, it is not as good as my favorite action movies ever, but it belongs in the conversation. Super fun. Good recommendation, Ben. Uh, I think I'm going to come right in at the same number of exploding cash donkeys, four and a half. I think that the thing that sometimes bothers me in action movies is when they seem to have been made by psychopaths, and I don't get that feeling watching this movie. Like, there's a lot of violence and death, and it... It doesn't go unfelt. It's reluctant. 
And it also, you know, to some extent, passes some moral judgment on the decision making that the main characters are doing. Like they suffer for the bad choices that they make and the the sins of avarice that they commit at the beginning haunt them for the rest of the movie. And I agree with you that it's surprisingly good. Um, I think the only thing that really would have taken it over the top was if Ben Affleck had taken off his shirt and we got to get a load of that crazy dragon tattoo just one time. You guys just keep making fun of Ben Affleck. <laughs> keep doing it. I will continue to ride for Affleck. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> As Friendly Fire's chief Ben Affleck apologist. Yeah. No, but I, I I like him in this movie, and I think it's like, like as a guy who is like an A-list, you know, like one of the actors in Hollywood that, you know, gets a name above the title on a poster, and that guarantees a certain amount of asses and seats. It's really awesome that he is not the main character of this movie, and that he is willing to be a character that buys it at the three-quarter mark to heighten the impact of the movie. Adam, would you say that you liked Ben Affleck as much as Ben hates Mel Gibson? I don't know. It's possible to feel a feeling as strongly as Ben hates Mel Gibson. But you, you ride for Affleck pretty hard. I do. And I do that sincerely. Like it's not a bit. Well, I agree with both of what you said, Ben. I thought that it was, um, I thought that your point is well taken that, Every death in this movie is accounted for in uh, with someone's emotional reaction. Even the scene where the guards are kind of getting killed one after another in typical action movie uh, fashion, there is a sense that our heroes are all, every death bums them out more. Every one of them is just like, ugh. I mean, when... when uh, <laughs> When our guy goes back into the kitchen to kill the two dudes that they made every attempt to try to save, and yeah. they just realized, like, well, everybody's got to die now, I guess. Um, that was so affecting. Because at that point, what's the difference? <laughs> right. I mean, but that's that was real, and the and the 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 movie does sit in judgment, and it and there is a lot of sense that planning a mission and trying to pull it off. Um that these guys would go into it thinking it was uncomplicated because probably every mission they ever did before had a support staff of people that were helping make the right choices and that were providing. Right. There was a drone that could tell them when the G wagon was departing the church. Right. But also there was somebody that like had thought it all that had the maps and had thought it all through and realized what the weight problem, you know, all this like, they, they realize over and over that they're not as smart as they think they are. And that's cool. It really adds to the ride that you're on. Um, I, I really liked it as an adventure movie. There are a lot of parallels here with Three Kings. And hmm. I think this movie is, uh, is way better than Three Kings. And part of it is, as I was saying earlier, like the scale of what they're trying to do both in the movie and as a movie, it's manageable for us as viewers. The movie's not trying to talk about geopolitics. It's not even really getting into that except as a, as like an accidental adjunct. Mostly it's just like these dinglings that we don't think are dinglings are trying to pull this off. And you know, it's, it's almost, it almost has a no country for old men 
feel. So I'm right with you guys at four and a half exploding cash donkeys. I don't think I would take a half a, do- a donkey away. I mean, maybe it loses a half a don- uh, cash donkey just for being a heist movie. Wow. How about that? High pork chop watermark. This is where the pork chop started to roll back. <laughs> Very few total guys in Triple Frontier. I'm wondering if we're going to get any repeat guys in our selection. Maybe. Ben, who's your guy? Uh, my my guy is the Pedro Pascal character. He gets kind of dragged by the other guys a lot at the beginning as as just the pilot. He proves to be a very capable dude all the way through and gets the kind of un, unfun job of wasting the, the tied-up guys in the kitchen during the raid. And I think the reason that I made him my guy is that scene where they're lying out on the bags of money after they've gotten over the top of the ridge and down they're kind of heading down the mountain on the other side and he says hey can i are you awake i got something to say we got to get our shit together and i think he says that because he's feeling really bad about being the first person to start pulling the trigger at, at the coca farm like uh when the when the chopper crashed yeah like he's saying that as much about himself as anyone else He's saying it as much about himself as anyone else. He feels all of the responsibility for the group's fuck-ups on his own shoulders. He also has that huge monologue about how much he hates Mel Gibson. Like, that yeah. was yeah. another that, part It, it really won guy. me over. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he just virtue signals better than almost anybody. <laughs> and, uh, and for that reason, he's my guy. Cool mustache, too. <laughs> Uh, my guy is the helicopter salesman, uh, played by Hakim Shady Muhammad, who has a pretty <laughs> extensive IMDb. He's a Somalian guy. Oh, and he appears in a lot of uh, a lot of films. He's been making movies for a while. Um, but he, when he shows up in that Cessna and gets out <laughs> with that look of just like, "Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm here." <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? And then he's like, check it. And the helicopter comes over. He's just so, he's just so into his thing. He's like a, he's like a black market helicopter bro. He's got a flair for the dramatic. And he's just cool. He's dressed cool. You know that they hand him that bag of cash for the helicopter. And he's like, right on Shaka bra. And he gets his other guy. He gets the, the, the ferrying pilot in his Cessna and they bug out to wherever they live. I love this whole deal because from then on, not my problem. Yeah, right. Here's your chopper. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the bag of money. I just liked, and you know, I love, I love when movies like this suggest the, the existence of this global network of fixers and supply guys. You know, you, you pick up the phone, you're like, I know a guy. And then all of a sudden it, he shows up with a trunk full of guns like that world. Although I know it does exist and I know that it's full of real creeps. I just love little glimpses of it like that. And, yeah. and he's got a, he brings a lot of panache to that moment. Being a pilot is so specialized that you've got to believe that there are a number of guys out there doing this work. Well, and the backstory high demand, like he, he jumps out of that plane and you recognize him immediately as a Somalian guy. And the backstory of him how he gets to South America right. and is like the, the pilot 
a helicopter fixer. Yeah. Like I know where you live when <laughs> when the guy says you you don't want to count the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what's his story, man? I'd watch a movie about him. Yeah. There's a confidence in the film about its characters that that doesn't need to give you any more than that. The mere suggestion is enough. Yeah. And and thank God he is Somalian and not a Ukrainian, right? right? Because if that helicopter showed up and the guy was like, oh, blah, 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 you'd go like, yeah, sure. Okay, of course. He's yeah. fucking. It's from more Bulgaria. interesting this way. Yeah, right. For sure. Uh, there, you guys knew my guy was going to be Affleck from the start. <laughs> sure. Right? But I think there's very specific reasons why. Like, Yeah, you look like him. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you love Affleck because he because you guys look look alike. I don't believe same, that to same be Same back tattoo. That's that's for sure. <laughs> I I wish I looked like Ben Affleck. Your wife is the J-Lo of Seattle. I wish I had teeth that good. <laughs> his, uh, his reluctance to be part of a thing that feels sketchy, I get that. But then getting caught up in a thing that makes him excited against his better instincts, I also feel that quite a bit. But that feeling uh causing him to make mistakes that end up killing him is also a thing that i can really get with like there's a there's like his overall temperament and what his character goes through to get him to his eventual outcome it is so believable so believable like he doesn't want to do it come on guys like this i'll be fine with my pickup truck and my real estate career like i don't think okay Oh, there's there's actually a lot of money in here. Look, like I built in some time into the timeline. Like you could see there's a gambler in him that felt very familiar to me. And his that, relationship with his daughter plays that out too. She She's only in the movie a very little bit, but she gives that character a lot. Like he has so many lines. Like as in, and by that I mean like lines he won't cross as a character until he's presented with the chance to do so. And then up and over that line. And then up and over the next, he's almost like, he's weirdly like an addict in that way, I guess. Like he's presented with these opportunities to use. And he's like, I I don't know, guys, like this isn't for me. And then he's just in, he's in before he can even finish the statement. And there was something like, uh, obviously tragic about it because he ends up being shot in the head later, but also very like familiar. Like he didn't want to do this, but he's got four guys and a pilot who who love him and like want him to run the show and what's he doing he's just gonna do recon and and like set an agenda like these are things that he's best at what's the big deal that being caught up in a thing uh that felt like that tension in him like that being swept away by a story was like really well done and i thought well performed by ben affleck here so that makes him my guy yeah if they had each just taken thirty million dollars, they would have gotten over the hill to the boat and been gone. Yeah, uh, but they but they tried to get fifty million dollars each. And, they didn't and agree it. beforehand on the tensile strength of the bags they had right. and the amount of cash to carry. That what they did was they left that decision to to occur in the mansion, and they had to pre-plan that like the rest of the stuff Ben Affleck planned. Right, because they were grabbing bags out of the closet. Yeah, if they left with two fifty. That house had billions of dollars in it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bonkers. Fun film. Good pick, man. Gotta get myself a Brazilian money house. I know, right? The house is the bank. <laughs> <laughs> How many times did that get said? Four the house times? is the bank. The house 
Wait, 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 you guys. The house is the bank. The files are in the computer. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. Hey, uh, bet on it. Are we getting a sequel to this film? Wow. We got to get a sequel, right? I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know if it was successful enough. It's... It's hard to tell with Netflix things. Yeah, like if how they, they measure can, success. Who knows? Yeah, like what are the stakes? All they have to do is go back, find that crack in the ground with a helicopter and get the stuff out. Like who are the bad guys? Who it's, are we Yeah, fighting? it's a very successful <laughs> by the book mission. Like we got the right chopper, <laughs> dropping the hook in there. Yep. <laughs> they meet that kid that they left with a stack of hundreds. Hey guys, hey, you're back. Up? You're right, I went to college. <laughs> zero stakes, zero tension. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we're better off not getting a sequel. I mean, I'd like I'd like more movies out of this team. Yeah. I think uh leave them wanting more is a a great way to do it in entertainment. Catherine Bigelow has a pretty good record with us, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the people responsible for making a decision that makes a film like this possible. That is a team I want to keep producing films like this. Totally. Well, uh, I think we should probably uh, call it there, gentlemen. So we'll leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend. We'll see you next month with another pork chop film. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.